0: Mark chapter 10, we're going to start in verse number 32 this morning. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat in front of you. We encourage you to take that. Same version I'll be reading from here this morning. If you need a Bible, you're welcome to take that with you when you leave as our gift to you. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Father God, I just pray now that you would bless this portion of our service. We thank you for the good music today and the sweet fellowship and uh, all the things related to Operation Christmas Child. And Lord, it's just been good to be in the Lord's house on this day. But we pray now our hearts and minds would concentrate on your word. Fill us with your spirit that we might hear. Fill me with your spirit that I might speak and preach the things that I ought to. Help me, Lord, to uh, speak boldly where I should and be silent where I ought not. And just, uh, just use this time. Father, I pray that you would revive us as we think about this important truth. And there may be some here today, Lord, who have never responded to this, have never acted upon this truth. And I pray this would be the day they would. Let nobody leave this place lost. Let nobody leave this, leave this place confused or wondering uh, what Jesus was all about. I pray it's clear here today, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Well, this section that we read here this morning begins with Jesus once again predicting his death. Uh, if you've been with us throughout our study in Mark, then you know that this is uh, about the third such prediction. He predicted the same in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31 and chapter 9 and verse 31. So three times he's predicted his death now. He's actually predicted his resurrection four times, those same verses, plus also Mark chapter 9 and verse number 9. So it's a prediction that Jesus is making here. And as a prediction, it is, uh, it's is—it's really kind of two things. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Uh, but in, in, on the other hand, it's also quite common. It's remarkable because of its precision. I don't know if you paid attention there, but Jesus predicted down to the smallest detail what would take place in just a few days hence. We're on our way to Jerusalem now. Uh, We're coming up on the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he predicted with tremendous precision what would take place. And so, in that respect, I would submit that it's a wonderful example of his omniscience. I mean, how could he know these things? Think about the things he said there. How could he know them? Nobody could know this unless they were all-knowing, unless they were all-seeing. And so it's a wonderful reminder to us that Jesus Christ was and is God but it's not—it's not only remarkable for those reasons. I, I would also have to say that it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's really common, really for the same reasons. Because every prediction that we find in our Bible is just as precise and going to happen just as truly as these ones that we see right here. And it's a sobering reminder to me. It ought to be a sobering reminder to all of us that if the Bible says something that applies to us, it's just as true. And it's going to come true just as surely as what he said there. The Bible says some things about us, you know. The Bible does say that all of us are going to stand before God one day. It's appointed on a man once to die, but after this, the judgment. All of us are going to stand face to face with God. If we're believers, the Bible says there's a particular judgment we'll stand before him, and that's called the judgment seat of Christ. It says we're all going to stand there, and we're all going to give an account That's referenced in Romans chapter 14 and verse number 10. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's pretty clear. I don't know how you can weasel out of that one. It's pretty clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And you may have heard it preached and taught that the judgment seat of Christ will be just simply a place where rewards are doled out to us for our service. And that certainly will be part of it. But you can't just cut out any part of that verse. We receive the things done in our body, whether good or bad. I don't understand all that's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ, but I know this. There's going to be a hard few seconds there. And we're going to be facing our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a sobering thought. But it's not as sobering as the uh, judgment that awaits those who don't believe. Those who have never trusted Jesus Christ, that their Savior, face yet another judgment. That's referenced in, nine, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and following. It's referred to as the great white throne judgment. I won't be there. And those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior won't be there facing Jesus there because it's only for the lost. It's only for those who have never chosen Christ. It's only for those who have never believed to the saving of their soul. And if you're standing before that bar and looking at that judge, there's only one verdict that comes down. And that's the lake of fire, the Bible says. Everyone who leaves there is condemned to hell. And so these are sobering thoughts. When the Bible predicts something, they're going to happen exactly as the Bible says. And we need to take notice. And here's a perfect example. Think about all, all the ways in which Jesus so precisely, so precisely predicted what would take place in just the, in, in just the next few days, really. He said he would be betrayed. Did you notice that? Son of man will be betrayed. That was prophesied way back in Psalm chapter 41 also. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He prophesied it. And then we see it's fulfilled. If we go a little bit further in Mark, we'll come to Mark chapter 14 and verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He said he would be betrayed. He said he would be condemned. That, too, had been prophesied earlier. Isaiah had said he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. But we fast forward to Mark chapter 14 and verse 64, and we see it's fulfilled exactly. He would be condemned. You have heard the blasphemy, they said. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be guilty and deserving of death. He said he would be delivered to the Gentiles. Very specific the Gentiles. And that was fulfilled in Mark 15, 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, the governor of the Gentiles. He said he would be mocked. The psalmist had prophesied the same in Psalm 22. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me. Ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Mocked. And we see that same thing fulfilled in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. He would be mocked. He said he would be spit upon. Spit upon. That seems like a very insignificant little detail, doesn't it? Even That. Tiny little detail was prophesied and was uh, fulfilled. Prophesied in Isaiah chapter 50, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Fulfilled in Mark chapter 15, and they spat on him. He said he would be scourged. Such was prophesied clear back in Isaiah, I gave my back to those who struck me. Fulfilled in Mark 15:15. 15, 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. He said he would be killed. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. He said he would rise again. Just had been prophesied in the Psalms, you will not leave my soul and shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then we come to the end of the book of Mark. One of these days we'll get there. And we read these absolutely wonderful words. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay. Such precision. The precision in Jesus' words is absolutely wonderful. We are compelled by such evidence, at least I think we ought to be, to honestly consider who this man was and who this man is. Just in the previous passage, we saw him discussing with uh, the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler called him good teacher, good master, and he said, Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. And you remember we said the implication of that. Seemed to be that he was saying, don't you know that in calling me good, you're calling me God. It was an indication of who he was. And now here, just a few, uh, a few verses later, in this short paragraph, spoken to his disciples, he's demonstrating that very truth by the fact that he knows everything. His omniscience. Only God could know the future in such detail. And of course, the Bible tells us that in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that's one thing that I think we see here is this wonderful illustration of who Jesus was as we look at his, his, his prophecy. But I think we see something else here. We're going to skip a major part of this passage. We're going to look at the front of it and the end of it. We may come back to that center part where the crazy disciples are asking him a question. We may come back to that later. But uh, for now, I want us to think about this beginning portion and also the very last verse because we see something there. We see an answer to the question, Why? Why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? What was his purpose statement, if you will? Why would the very Son of God, who was in very nature God, equal with God, enjoying all the privileges and glory of being God, lay all that aside, clothe himself with humanity, and come here? Why? Was it just because he wanted to provide us an example to follow? You know, that's what an awful lot of people think and teach. Jesus was a great teacher. He was an ethical, moral man. He gave us a wonderful example to follow. Is that why? Well, no, it was more. And in this passage, I think we see the very essence of why Jesus came. Look at verse 45. You might want to circle it in your Bible. It's the key verse to the Gospel of Mark. It's taken us 40 weeks to actually reach that key verse, but it is the key verse to understanding the entire Gospel of Mark. Chapter 10, Verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve you and me. He came to die for you and me, to give his life a ransom for many. In Matthew's account of this same conversation, he points out that Jesus not only predicted his impending death, but he actually knew what kind of death. He said he would be crucified, not just killed crucified, even greater level of of, of detail. So why did Jesus come? He came to die on the cross for many, for you and for me. So what I'd like to do for the rest of this few moments that we have here this morning is to just think about that cross upon which Jesus died. Uh, We're going to kind of branch away from our text. We're going to bring some other things into, into it and just talk topically for a few moments about that cross because it was the reason he came. It's the reason we're here. It's the reason there is Christianity, the cross. So let me suggest three things as we think about that. Let me suggest that the cross was horrible, that it was necessary, and finally that it was voluntary. Three words, all important. First of all, the cross was horrible. I know that some try to downplay the cross because of that very reason. It's offensive. It's horrible. Some churches and denominations have removed references to the, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, completely from their hymn books, from their preaching, from their literature, because of the whole idea. It's offensive. It's ugly, the blood of Christ. But I guess that's kind of the point, isn't it? It is horrible. Death itself is horrible. Imagine Adam and Eve's mindset after they had sinned, after the, after the fall And they witnessed the first act of bloodshed and death that took place as a result of that. When God covered their sin with the shed blood of another. You you might remember, they had tried to cover up their sin. They had made fig leaves and sewed them together and tried to make themselves coverings to cover their sin. And God said, no, that's not enough. For Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin and clothed them. Where did that skin come from? Something died. Blood was shed. Cover their sin. Up to that point, there had been no death. Can you imagine what that must have been like to them? Death is a horrible thing. Fast forward to the days when uh, the sacrifices were taking place in the Jewish temple. Can you imagine that place? Animal after animal after animal after animal after animal sacrifice. Rivers of blood must have flowed through that place. Demonstrating to them and reminding of just how horrible death is. And frankly... For any of us who have lived any length of time on this earth, we don't need those kind of examples, really, do we? We've all experienced enough death to know how horrible it is. My uh, sweet wife experienced it yet again this morning, as a good friend of hers passed away just after midnight. Bud Egley and his family recently experienced it as they laid their dear Bobby in the ground. I went back and I looked, and in just the last few years, I have preached approximately 30 funerals. Probably attended just as many that I didn't preach. There's hardly life in this room that's untouched by death. We've all experienced it over and over. It's horrible. Death is horrible. The Bible describes it as an enemy. And we might argue, I I think it would be a valid argument to say that the death of the cross, which Jesus was walking toward in our text... One of the most horrible forms of death that's ever been devised. Here's how one man described it, and there's other explanations and descriptions you might find, but here's how one that I came across. He said, Crucifixion was preceded by scourging with thongs, to which were sometimes added nails, pieces of bone, etc., to heighten the pain, often so intense as to cause death. The place of execution was outside the city. Arrived there, the condemned was stripped of his clothes, which became the prerequisite of the soldiers. And the cross, having been previously erected, he was drawn up and made fast to it with cords or nails, although sometimes he was fastened to the cross, which was afterward raised. The limbs of the victim were generally three or four feet from the earth. The sufferer was left to die of sheer exhaustion, and it might take days to accomplish the process. Instances are on record of persons surviving for nine days. Fracture of the legs was resorted to by the Jews to hasten death. In most cases, the body was suffered to rot on the cross by the action of the sun and rain or to be devoured by birds and beasts. Horrible. Horrible. So the first thing as we think about the cross, death alone is horrible, but the death of the cross, beyond words, horrible. The second thing I want us to notice is that the cross was Necessary. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The dying of the seed was necessary to produce the living wheat. He also said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son must die, he said. He must be lifted up, he said, picturing that that death would be by crucifixion lifted up on a cross cross was necessary, and it was necessary for a couple of reasons at least. I mean, we, we could probably come up with all kinds, but certainly a couple of reasons. First, it was needed because the only remedy for sin is death. Over and over the Bible tells us this, over and over. Uh, we've already referenced this a little bit, but Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 17, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's what God said to Adam and Eve, and that's what they experienced And passed down to all of us. Ezekiel 18.4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. That's pretty clear. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 9.22. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Think about that first object lesson again where Adam and Eve witnessed the covering of their sin, by the shed blood of another, with the death of an innocent. So the cross was necessary because death is the penalty of sin. And secondly, the cross was necessary because you and I couldn't pay that penalty ourselves. We couldn't pay the debt that was owed. If death's the only payment, it would require us to die and be eternally separated from God forever in hell, which is all included In that, if we're going to pay for our own sins, impossible, impossible payment to make. I read once of a bank that had a sign in their front window and it said this. It said, now you can borrow enough to get completely out of debt. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. It's a pretty good illustration of what we would be trying to do to pay off our own sin debt. It's not possible. It's impossible. My sins demanded hell. On him, the judgment fell. The cross was necessary because it was the only solution to our impossible plight. The songwriter said, Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. So the cross was horrible. The cross was necessary. The third thing I wanted to see is the cross was Voluntary. Voluntary. We can't read that first verse, verse 32, without seeing the voluntary nature of this thing. Jesus was going to Jerusalem knowing all of these things that were going to befall him. Knowing he would be betrayed and condemned and delivered and mocked and scourged and spit upon and crucified. He knew this future awaited him. And yet, as the NIV translates that verse, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus Leading the way. He was leading the way. He was going of his own free will. Nobody was dragging him. Nobody was forcing him. All he had to do was turn around and go the other way. But he was determined to go and to die for you and to die for me. Remember that purpose statement, that verse that described why he came? Verse number 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He went alone to die for us, to die for you, to die for me. Verse 32, Jesus went before them. The disciples may have been following, but he was out front leading the way alone. The aloneness of his sacrifice would be seen over and over in the coming days. It would be seen when men would forsake him at his betrayal. Mark chapter 14 and verse 50, they all forsook him and fled. And even God would temporarily forsake him on the cross. The ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, "Eloi, le, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, sabachthani, which is translated, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me alone?" And he also went voluntarily to die for you. My, my, my sister, my little sister used to sing a song in this church, maybe in other churches as well, I don't know. I remember her singing it here. And it's one of the songs that I absolutely love to sing her here. Love to hear her sing, and it was entitled "Who Killed Jesus." Anybody ever hear that song? Who killed Jesus? The words go like this: Who killed Jesus? I would like to know. Who is guilty of a crime so low? Why did he have to die? What is the reason why? Who killed Jesus? I would like to know. Was it Roman soldiers with their tools of war, pounding nails through hands that did no wrong? Mocking and abusing, crowning him with thorns? All the evidence is very strong. Was it Pontius Pilate? He was governor, trying to decide the case that day, finding that the Savior had no fault his own. Was he guilty when he turned away? Was it Hebrew children, proud of who they were, shouting, Crucify him to their king? Rejecting their Messiah for a common thief. Turning down the kingdom he could bring. When I think of Jesus and the way he died, how upon him all my sin was lain. All the other people fade away from view. It's for me the sacrifice was made. I no longer wonder anymore. I have found what I've been searching for. My sin demanded hell. On him the judgment fell. I am guilty. Now it's plain to see that it was really me. Nobody's ever heard that song? That's such a great song. Such a great song. And I love that song. And I cannot, I can't read the words without hearing the voice of my sister singing that song. I've never, I don't think heard anybody else sing it. But I have to tell you that there's a fundamental misunderstanding in the song itself. It has a problem. A theological problem. And that's because it asks a very flawed question. Who killed Jesus? The question is flawed because Jesus himself said nobody killed Jesus. He made it clear that he voluntarily gave his life. That he died for you and for me and for all just as an act of his own will. Listen to what he said in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it, my life. No one takes my life for me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. What an astonishing statement. I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. When he was on the cross, they gave him wine to drink, mingled with myrrh, and he would not take it, according to Mark chapter 15 and verse number 23. You know why? Because he did not want to. He wanted to make sure he was conscious and fully voluntarily taking the payment of your sin and mine, uh, paying the price. And then when his payment for your sins and mine on that cross was completed, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, John 19, verse 30, he gave up his spirit. Meditate on that one for a minute. See if it doesn't amaze you more and more the longer you think about it. He gave up his spirit. When Jesus knew the thing was done, knew the debt was paid, knew that sin was atoned for, knew that God's wrath was satisfied, he died. Think about that. He decided it was time. Everything was done. The task was accomplished. It was finished. And so he just decided to die. He gave up, he chose when to die, and he died. he could and did just decide to die. You and i can 't do that I, I personally think it 's one of the great miracles Jesus accomplished, and it 's very seldom talked about. whatever we think about it, we have to see this: he died voluntarily. the cross was voluntary. Well, we could talk about all those things for a long time, but we 'll stop Christ purpose statement is seen in verse 45, to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to die on the cross. That's why he came. And he came to die on the cross for you and for me. He knew the cross would be horrible. He also knew the cross was necessary. It was our only hope. It was the only way. And so he headed for Jerusalem, leading his disciples toward that moment when he would voluntarily lay down his life on that cross. Cross of Jesus, cross of sorrow, where the blood of Christ was shed. Perfect man on thee did suffer. Perfect God on thee has bled. For me, for you, for many. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom.